Well, amen. It's good to be in the house of God this morning. Can I get an amen from all y'all? I said y'all. I don't normally say that from the pulpit, but uh, I don't know. Pastor Dave's gone. Anything can happen, right? Well, hey, if this is your first time at Hillside, we just want to say welcome. Uh, As you heard Josh say in the video, uh, welcome home. We are one big family. And as a family, we live together. And as a family, um, we like to eat food together. Does everyone like to eat food together? Amen. Okay, if you like to eat food, you can make a little bit more noise than that. Right? All right. Well, here's the deal. Uh, You guys saw a video in the little announcement video for an opportunity to serve. And so before we dive into the sermon, this is going to be like a public service service announcement. This is going to be the pastoral plead uh, to the body of Christ. We have Wichita Community Dinner every third Friday of the month. Uh, Is Rhonda Kill here? Rhonda Kill, where are you at? Rhonda, can you stand up real quick? Awesome, guys. This is Rhonda. Let's give it up for Rhonda real quick. Rhonda's been coordinating this, uh, and, and she's been putting together an amazing team. Uh, and here's the deal. We need more people. Every once in a while, you hear us come up here, and we, and we give an announcement and say, hey, we'd love some volunteers. And yes, we would love some volunteers, but we need more people this Friday night. We need more people every third Friday night. This is where the rubber meets the road here. We, we have some 35 to 45 families that we serve every third Friday there at Wichita. Um, and it's been amazing. The church has been doing it for, for just about two years. And we've built some amazing relationships there at Wichita. But where we are at right now, we haven't been having as many volunteers and as many people serving. And where we are at right now, we are not going to be able to continue to serve these 35 to 45 families every third Friday. If, if we don't have the volunteer base, we're just not gonna be able to do this. And uh, that's kind of sad. And so I am pleading with you. I know Rhonda's pleading with you. Pastor Dave, who just hopped on an airplane from Long Beach to here this morning, uh, he's on the airplane pleading with you. He told me, uh, pull no punches, invite them, but also tell them we need them. And so uh, if that is something that you feel called to, if that is something you're even interested in and you want to see, please go see Rhonda directly following service. She's going to be out in the foyer uh, at the information table. We need people to go love. Amen? Amen. Amen. So I just want to encourage you with that. Let's dive in this morning uh, to a message that I would like to entitle, uh, There is Something Burning out in the desert. Something burning out in the desert. We're starting our new series. We're, uh, we're calling the series An Arrows Out Culture. It's a study of the book of Exodus. Uh, this is the story of the children of Israel leaving bondage and slavery in Egypt. The story of the great leader Moses, one of the greatest leaders in the history of humanity, one of the greatest historians and the leaders of humanity, one of uh, the greatest theologians in all history uh, of humanity. And it all boils down in this story in this book that is titled The Exodus. Now, last week, Pastor Dave gave us a theological overview of the entire book. Uh, It's not every Sunday you come to Hillside Christian Fellowship and we get more than five verses um, or one chapter, but Pastor Dave did the entire book last week. Um, But that was a theological overview. I hope you're ready for the long haul because we're going to be Driving through the book of Exodus, it's going to be fun. But I'm going to be giving us this morning uh, a historical overview of the book of Exodus. 
Um, in Bible study, in theology, there's this fun word. You've probably heard it before, and if you hadn't, you're going to learn a new word today. Go use it in Scrabble. It's hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. And what hermeneutics is, is it's the study, uh, when you're studying scripture, knowing the context, who it's written for, who it's uh, written by, what time is it written at, what region is it being written, what is the true meaning of this portion of scripture. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the hermeneutic of Exodus. We're going to dive in and we're going to see the historical context in which this book was written, the historical context uh, in which the events of this book are allegedly taking place. I'm going to say allegedly. You're going to see where we're going to get in just a moment with this. But before we do that, I want to start with a story. And this is a story I heard on the radio. Two weeks ago, uh, I was listening to, to Chuck Swindoll. Anyone listen to Chuck Swindoll before? Yeah, I'm listening to Chuck Swindoll, and he gives this great story. Uh, and I said, that's perfect to open up the sermon. He said uh, he was, when he was younger, um, someone who went to his church, a little child, came up to his dad and said, Dad, in Sunday school today, we learned about Exodus. And his dad asked him, oh, well, tell me what you learned. And he goes, well, we learned about the Red Sea and, and, and all of that. And his dad's like, oh, well, 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 tell me about it. He's like, well, there was this group of people. They were called the Israelites, and they were in Egypt, and the king wasn't very nice, and they had a really nice leader named Moses, and they argued with one another, and the king wouldn't let the people go unless Moses did some magic tricks. And Moses did some magic tricks, and the king let him go, and so they left. But then the king couldn't figure out why he let him go, so the king decided he'd follow them. And the children of Israel, they were at this great thing called the Sea of Red. Don't you mean the Red Sea? Oh, I'm out of, there we go. Uh, <laughs> antennas, you know. Um, the Red Sea. And he's like, yeah, the Red Sea. And then they looked up and they saw the Egyptian army coming and the bad king leading the way. And Moses said, we have to pray. And so Moses prayed and some jets came. And the jets, they lowered an inflatable bridge onto the Red Sea. And his dad's kind of scratching his head. Okay, where's he going with this? And then the children of Israel, they go across the inflated bridge, and the king and his evil army are coming. And right before they get to the bridge, some helicopters with machine guns come in, and they start blowing up the bridge, and they start popping it. And so when the enemy army's on the bridge, they sink into the water, and then they die, and the children of Israel free. And the dad says to his son, is that really what your Sunday school teacher told you? Because if it was, there was going to be a problem, right? And the kid said to his dad, no, that's not what the Sunday school teacher told me. But if I told you what he said, no one would believe it were possible. <laughs> right? That, that's got, if a kid can comprehend this, there's something there. As we studied the story of Exodus, there are some things that are miraculous that take place. But, sadly, the world and the culture in which we live, the miraculous is written off as mythical. The, the, these stories where God interacts with humanity, they're just fairy tales. In current mainstream academia, the story of the book of Exodus, that's all it is. It is believed that the Exodus, that the children of Israel, that Moses, this stuff never happened. It's all just a story. It's a fairy tale. It has some good theological importance, but it never happened. It's just a feel-good story. And because of this, many people have questioned the validity of Scripture. Many people have questioned the promises that God has for us that are contained within Scripture. 
And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to address some of these uh, challenges that uh, secular culture, that mainstream academia, uh, that classical archaeology, we're going to address some of the questions that they raise, and we're going to try and dig for the truth. Does that sound like a good plan to you guys? All right, let's pray this morning before we go any further. Dear God, we thank you so much for this time that we've had in worship. And God, we pray that in these next few moments, as we study your word, God, as we look at the truths that are contained within your word, God, as we, as we try and ascertain the truth, uh, God, I pray that you would reveal who you are to us. God, that you would reveal your perfect truth to us. And God, that as we look at the historical evidences, God, that we would be encouraged in our faith. So God, I pray that we would leave this place different than when we came. God, that we would have more information, but information only goes so far. God, that we would have assurance in who you are and what you've done for us. So God, we just thank you. We praise you in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So I had mentioned that current mainstream academia has a problem uh, with Exodus. They have a problem with the events that take place. And many of these problems and these events hinge on one small phrase that is mentioned in the book of Exodus. Uh, and it has thrown uh, history, archaeology, uh, theological schools. It, it's thrown them all for a whirlwind since about the late 1800s when archaeology first started picking up. And it is a verse that says, and then the children of Israel built the cities of Ramses and Pithon. Now, you're all like, what's the big deal with that? Why is that a problem? Well, the problem is Ramses is a city that is named after a pharaoh named Ramses. This would be Ramses II. And according to mainstream archaeology, according to mainstream history, even according to biblical history, Ramses is reigning in about 1280 to 1250 B.C. So because of that, we look for evidence, we look for archaeological proof of the Exodus at the time period of 1250, 1280 B.C. And guess what we find? We find absolutely zero archaeological evidence for an exodus, for a person named Moses, for a group of Israelites in Egypt. There is no evidence. And because there's no evidence, we write it off as this never happened. Now, there's some problems with this. And we're going to adjust those or, or, or address those problems in just a few moments. Um, and the first problem that I really want us to address is one of reasoning and uh, the timeline issues. And so, Josh, if you could throw up on the screen, we have some timelines, uh, and I want to go over a few things with you. I know it's a little hard to read, uh, so if you'd like a hard copy of this, uh, just let me know, and I'll email you this. But what we have here is we have a standard timeline of Egyptian history. Uh, it was broken into 30 different dynasties, three different kingdoms, the old kingdom, the middle kingdom, and the new kingdom. And our sources for this timeline come from an Egyptian historian who was also, uh, he was in the clergy of Egyptian religion, and his name was Manatheo. He wrote in Greek, he was a historian of the Egyptian people, and he wrote a history and a list of every single king that had ever ruled and reigned in Egypt for all of their history. He writes down name, name, and it's a chronological list of these kings. Now, interestingly enough, uh, it's not up here on the screen, but here's a little fun tidbit 
about the Bible and about the truth of the Bible. Manetheo, when he's writing this, he's writing this uh, just around the turn of B.C. to A.D., uh, and he is writing, and he says, in Egypt, there were 10 kings who ruled the entire world before the flood destroyed the world. Now, that's important, but that's for Genesis. We're in Exodus. But notice, he says, 10 kings ruled the world. How many, if we were to go to Genesis 5, how many people from Adam are there to Noah? There's 10 people. And Manatheo says 10 people ruled the world before the flood, and then Egypt started after the flood. So there's really no problems with this, except when you look at the dates that Manatheo gives, they cause some red flags and some questions for theologians and historians. In the late 1800s, uh, archaeology was in its heyday. It was a new science. People were getting excited about going to the Middle East and digging in the sand and finding old cities. Uh, and people all flocked to Egypt. You had people from England. You had people from France. You had people from Germany and Austria. All these high intellectual people who like to adventure, they're going to Egypt and they're digging in the sand and they're finding these things out. And they find Manatheo's work. And what they do is they list it from the first name he gives to the last name he gives. And we find that Egypt has existed for over 3,000 years. Also, maybe not a problem. Until we look at what the scriptures say about timelines. The Bible is a great theological book, but it also contains real history. And if we are to believe the Bible as literal which we do and which we should, then there are some dates that the Bible gives that are absolute. And it just so happens that when Manetheo is writing about the 3,000-year history of Egypt, there had only been about 2,200 years after the flood. So we have a swing of about 800 years that are unaccounted for, and because they're unaccounted for, either the Bible's wrong when it talks about when the flood took place, or maybe the flood never happened, or maybe the Egyptian timeline is a little bit wrong. Now we're gonna address the things that are wrong with the timeline in just a moment, but let me first say this. Archeology span was in its heyday in the 1800s. Everyone went to Egypt, and they established the Egyptian chronology. From there, archeologists have gone all over the Middle East, all over Greece, all over Rome, all over uh, the Indo-European region. They've gone to uh, Asia, East Asia. They've gone into Africa. Archaeology spread throughout the world. But the rubric they used or uh, their benchmark or their baseline timeline for everything was based off of the Egyptian timeline because Egyptian archaeology was the first it was the original archaeological study, and everyone based their timelines off of Egypt's timeline. This is important because, as we're going to see in just a few moments, the Egyptian timeline is off. And because the Egyptian timeline is off, we have errors in the Sumerian timeline, in the Babylonian timeline, in the Assyrian timeline, in the Akkadian timeline, in the Canaanite timeline, in the Greek timeline. You guys following with me? If we start and our foundation is in error, everything that follows is in error. And so what we want to do is we want to find what the truth is and then build our foundation from the truth. And so in the late 1970s, you had some, archaeolo uh, some archaeologists who started looking at these things and they started retranslating what Manetheo had written and they noticed something that was not noticed in the late 1800s. You see, with 
the Rosetta Stone, cracking Egyptian hieroglyph. We were able to then go and look at Egyptian sources and compare the Egyptian sources to the Greek sources. And we were able to have a better understanding of what Manatheo was writing down. And the picture that Manatheo points is not a history of Egypt that is 3,000 years old. What Manatheo actually paints is an Egypt that's about 2,150 years old. Now, what did we say? When Manatheo was writing, it was just about 2,200 years after the flood. Manatheo writes a history that takes place over a time of about 2,150. Now we're starting to see when we actually translate things correctly, things begin to line up. So what these guys did, uh, some Egyptian archaeologists led by a guy by the name of Dr. David Roll. Dr. David Roll uh, is out of Oxford, and he, uh, he is an agnostic. He does not believe in God. He does not believe in Christianity. He does not believe in the theology that the Bible presents. But what he does do is he says the Bible is one of the most widely circulated historical documents there are. According to David Rowe, there's no theological importance of Scripture. It's 100% a theological work or 100% a historical work. No theology. He doesn't believe it. It's just historical. And so what he says is the Bible should probably be able to be proved by the things we find in the sand. So let's go take a look. And what he does, and, and, and what he does with this other group of Egyptologists and archaeologists, they go and they do what is called the revised Egyptian timeline. Uh, it takes still the old kingdom, the middle kingdom, and the new kingdom, and it uses Manatheo's lists that has also backing with Egyptian hieroglyphs that are in Egyptian temples and Egyptian palaces that tell the story of all of um, the dynasties of Egypt. And what they find is that there are two different simultaneous congruent timelines going one with another. Josh, if you'd go to the next slide just real quick. We have here on the next slide, um, oh, we have some sources to consider first before we go to these pictures. Uh, some sources that we want to look at first are the, uh, the Egyptian documents. We have Greek documents. Uh, we have Mesopotamian documents. Uh, we have Jewish texts. And we have uh, the Bible uh, as, as some things that we are using as our sources. And so, Josh, if you go to the next slide real quick, we are going to take a look at this wonderful map of Egypt and there's a star at Memphis. Memphis is when we think of Egypt, this is the Egypt we think of. Next slide real quick. Uh, we have great ruins, great palaces, great temples uh, in the region of Memphis. This is what is known as Lower Egypt. It is in the Nile Delta. It is where uh, Alexandria is just a little bit north. This was the seat of Egyptian power. Uh, I think we have a rendering of what it maybe looked like back in the day. There it is. But at the same time, we have kings ruling in Memphis in Upper Egypt, which is actually south of Lower Egypt, uh, down towards Nubia, we have the city of Elephantine. Elephantine is actually an island in Aswan, which is this other capital of Egypt where you had a pharaoh ruling at the same time you had pharaohs ruling in Memphis. You had two kings ruling at the same time. And what we have found by cracking Egyptian hieroglyph and comparing it to the Koine Greek that Manatheo wrote in, we realize that there are two pharaohs ruling at the same time at different points in Egypt's history. So Josh, if you could go back to that timeline just real quick. I know I didn't put it in order for you, so uh, please forgive me. Uh, but what you will see in the revised timeline is you will see that the first and second dynasty 
roll into the 11th and the 12th dynasty, which if you look at the standard, you'll see that it goes 1, 2, 3 through 6, 11 through 12. We know 11 through 12 is older than it had originally been because of some other sources uh, that standard academia uh, agrees with. But when we look at the revised and when we look at the proper translation of Manetheo, we see that the 12th and the 3rd dynasty are kind of ruling at the same time, and then it rolls 4, 5, 6, and then something happens, the old kingdom ends, uh, and there's about 100 years where there's no power in Egypt, and then we have the 13th through the 17th and the 7th through the 10th ruling at the exact same time, one in Memphis, one in Elephantine, trying to rebuild structure in Egypt. That rolls into a unified Egypt for the 18th through the 20th dynasty, but towards the end of that, we have some more ruling in one of those other cities from the 21st to the 25th dynasty, and then Egypt really comes together and finishes out the 26th through the the 30th dynasties ruling from one location. But what this does is this actually shrinks the Egyptian timeline by about 750 years. And by doing that, this is without even approaching the Bible first. This is strictly Greek and Egyptian documents. When you bring it and then you overlay it with the Bible, you begin to see the story that the Bible paints starts looking a little more believable to academia. So, let's take a look real quick as we pinpoint this timeline. Let's look at some archaeological proofs for the Exodus. One would be uh, the story of Joseph. As we remember, as we were closing out Genesis, we had the story of Joseph. Joseph goes down uh, into Egypt, and he's a slave. Uh, then he's in prison. Then he gets raised to being the second in command of all of Egypt. Interestingly enough, we have record of a pharaoh in the third dynasty, okay, see third dynasty right there, third dynasty, an emperor by the, or a pharaoh by the name of Dozier, and he has a non-Egyptian second in command, a guy by the name of Imhotep, and Imhotep literally translated, it's not a name, it's a title for a non-Egyptian that says, he who comes in peace, just so happens that at the same time, this guy named Imhotep is, is saving the nation from a famine that took place during Dozier's rule. Sounds a little familiar. We have at the tail end of the 12th dynasty, a canal being built, an offshoot of the Nile River that runs off into the desert where crops were. Now this is at the tail end of the 12th dynasty. So according to standard academia, these things are separate. But when you look at the revised chronology, the end of the 12th and the 3rd dynasty, they're coinciding. It just so happens that this 12th dynasty waterway starts in the south, which is upper Egypt, and runs to the north, which is lower Egypt, where the 12th and the 3rd dynasties are ruling at the same time. Now, this waterway, for thousands of years, and is still called this today, is called Bar Yusuf literally translated the waterways of Joseph. What is Bar Yusuf used for? To this day, it is still used to water the crops in the arid desert where wheat does not grow. But in ancient times, the most bountiful harvest of Egypt was wheat. What does the Bible tell us? Well, everyone went to Egypt because they had all the wheat because this guy named Joseph knew what was going on. And so we begin to see this archaeological evidence for Joseph. Now, we don't have time today. Um, 
I have to warn you, um, and I'm gonna give permission to people sitting in the front few rows. If I start going too long, feel free to throw things. Um, because uh, we did this with the youth group and with the college group, uh, and it went for three hours. Um, and we're not gonna do that today, I promise. So we're gonna cut a whole bunch out. But if you want more information on this, I've got a whole bunch of information that I'd love to give you. Uh, there's a great documentary you could go watch called Patterns of Evidence. Uh, it, it, it's amazing, it breaks down a lot of this. I'm pulling a lot of this from that. But Joseph, Joseph settles in a region of Lower Egypt, there in the Nile Delta, in a region which the Bible calls Goshen. Now we're going to jump back to that verse where it talks about Ramses and Pithon, and Ramses being the city that existed in about 1250, and there's no evidence for an exodus in 1250. Just so happens that underneath the city of Ramses, underneath the sand, buried beneath, is another city known as Avaris. And in Avaris, there is a vast community of Semitic peoples. And archaeologically, one of, the leading, uh, one of the world's leading archaeologists and Egyptologists is a guy by the name of Manfred Bittak. He's out of Austria. And he says it is very clearly a Semitic city in Egypt. But when asked if this is proof for the Exodus, he says absolutely not, because the Exodus is supposed to have taken place about 300 years after Avaris comes to an end. What's so important, though, about the city of Avaris is that there are not only Semitic houses, but there are Egyptian houses together, so we can see that the Egyptians and people from Israel were interacting one with another. This is where it gets a little bit crazy uh, and also pretty awesome. Um, when we approach the verse that talks about Ramses and Pithon, uh, what, uh, what archaeologists and what theologians have noticed is that this is what is called an anachronism. And what an anachronism is, is when a writer is writing to a group of people, telling them something, but using the language of the day. So if we were talking to someone who was not from the Pacific Northwest, not from Oregon. Let's say we're talking to someone who's from um, New York, someone who's from Europe, and let's say you live in Oregon City. Would you tell that person when they ask, oh, you're in Oregon, where do you live? Would you tell them Oregon City? Or would many of us just say, oh, yeah, I live in Portland? Okay, not, nod your head if you'd say Portland, because most people would recognize Portland over Oregon City, right? That is an anachronism. In, in essence, what is happening when the Bible says the city of Ramses is the author, Moses, the author of the Exodus, is telling the people, yes, where Ramses is, there is another city underneath it, which is called Avaris, and that's where the archaeological evidence is. More on that uh, at a later time. Uh, I've got more information on that. We're going to just keep going right over that because that's a fun topic that we could talk for a very long time. Some other archaeological proofs uh, and evidences can be found in Egyptian documents. Uh, we have many Egyptian documents. One, I mentioned Manatheo. Another would be the Turin Papyrus. Another would be the Black Granite Monument of Ismailia. Uh, in Ismailia, Egypt, there is a monument made out of black granite that talks about how the Egyptian armies at the end of the 6th dynasty, the entire Egyptian army drowned in a whirlwind at sea. Interesting, what would an Egyptian army from the desert be doing in the middle of a body of water drowning in a whirlwind? 
We're going to talk a little bit more in just a second about that. We have another Egyptian document known as the Laden Papyrus. The Laden Papyrus is a papyrus written by a guy by the name of Ippawar, and Ippawar is writing about the time of Ramses. He, he, he lives, and he's a contemporary of Ramses, and he's writing in a, a historical account about how the old kingdom came to an end. And this is what he says about how the sixth dynasty came to an end. He says that there was a Semitic magician. Let me translate that a little bit. Someone from the region of modern-day Israel who the Egyptians understood to be a magician who worked some magic, who destroyed Egypt, turned the water to blood, made hail fall from the sky, lice and frogs were everywhere. All the slaves get up and leave and they steal all the gold from Egypt. And then darkness falls over the land for several years. Now this is someone writing about 200 years after what he's claiming took place, but when we look at what he's writing, it sounds a lot like the story of the Exodus and the plagues and, and, and the things that the Bible purports to be fact, but the academia says is myth. But when academia looks at what Ippuar wrote, they said, well, of course, something like that must have taken place, but it can't be the Exodus because the Exodus doesn't fit when he was writing. What we begin to notice when we begin to look at the facts is that maybe our understanding of the timeline does not line up correctly. I, an, another one of these Egyptian sources and Egyptian documents uh, is um, the Temple of Seti at Abydos, Egypt. Uh, Seti was an, uh, a pharaoh. Uh, he had a big temple built to him. Uh, and there in Abydos, we see on the walls and on the pillars a story that is told. It's a story from the first dynasty to the 19th dynasty of Egypt. And it actually corroborates what Manatheo said about ruling in two different areas. But what it talks about, it talks about the end of the old kingdom. And it talks about it in great detail. Now before I tell you about the Temple of Seti in Abydos, I want to also talk about some of our Jewish sources. You see, when we read about history and when we read about the history of the Middle East, we have very extensive historical writings and chronologies from the Sumerians, from the Babylonians, from the Egyptians, but also we have very reliable historical documents from the Jews. The Jews like to write a lot of things down. Moses was one of the greatest historians of his time. He wrote Genesis and Exodus, two very strongly historical books. But there were other Jewish writers who were writing at the same time, and there's a work that is known and is talked about in Scripture, but is not Scripture. It's just a historical document known as the Book of Jasher. Uh, the Bible tells us in Judges uh, and in Second Chronicles that these things are recorded in the Book of Jasher. We have copies of the Book of Jasher dating back as far as the 10th century A.D., but we can see Roman historians, we can see Christian historians and Jewish historians quoting the book of Jasher as early as 2nd century BC. So we know this document existed at some point far back in time. And what the book of Jasher tells us about the collapse of the old empire um, or, or the collapse of the old kingdom and the 6th dynasty lines up word for word with what the Egyptian documents say. And we can see that the Egyptian and the Jewish documents mirror each other down to the point. This is what they say. The book of Jasher states that the pharaoh, before the last pharaoh of the old kingdom, 
was a guy by the name of Pepe II. And it's a fun name, right? Um, Jasher states that he started ruling when he was six years old, and he ruled for 94 years and was the longest ruling pharaoh Egypt had ever seen. Then he had a son. His son, his oldest son died, and his younger son took over the empire, and then within a year, everything fell apart. Then you go to the temple of Seti in Abydos, and it says, the pharaoh, second to the last pharaoh of the sixth dynasty, died when he was 100 years old and was the longest ruling pharaoh of Egypt's history. Now, let's look at Jasher. Jasher said six years old, reigned for 94. Simple math, six and 94 equals what? 100. What does the Egyptian source say? He lived for 100 years. We see, and we can start lining these things up because there's no other coincidences like that in either the Jewish text or the Egyptian text. And we can line these up and we can see that they fit perfectly. What else does Jasher and the Temple of Seti say? They say that the last pharaoh of the sixth dynasty who reigned for one year was a guy by the name of Nefrakari the Younger, or in Hebrew, Antismath II. Uh, he ruled for one year, and then Egypt was destroyed. It also says that he uh, had dwarfism. He was a dwarf. Uh, it also says that his older brother died of mental illness before he was able to rule the kingdom. And that when Nefrakari the younger died with the entire Egyptian army, his wife ruled because there were no men left to rule in all of Egypt and then Egypt went into darkness for over 100 years. Now, that's an interesting story, but let's look at the book of Exodus. Remember, when the last plague takes place and we have the angel of death, what does the angel of death do? He comes and he kills all the firstborn of Egypt. Now, a question that scholars have had for hundreds of years is, well, then how come the Pharaoh didn't die? Because in a patrilineal um, kingdom, the firstborn is the one who's ruling. And so if the angel of death came and killed all the firstborns, how come Pharaoh was still able to chase Moses? People have said, well, it can't be a real story. Exodus is just a fairy tale. It sounds good. When we go and we look at the Egyptian records, within a 600-year window, there is only one Pharaoh ruling who was a secondborn. You want to know, or you want to take a guess at who it is? It's Nefer the Younger, the one who was there right before the old kingdom ends and Egypt is wiped off the map for several hundred years. What does Moses tell us in Leviticus? He says that Egypt is still not around. What does Joshua say in the book of Joshua? That the Egyptian armies are still recovering from the time of the Exodus, some 40, 60, 70, 80 years after the fact we begin to see that the biblical narrative lines up almost perfectly with archaeology, with historical evidence. And so we can continue to take a look even beyond this. When we look at the historical evidence, when we look at the archaeological evidence for the Bible, we find out more often than not in classical uh, study and in modern academia, it's just written off as fairy tale, as myth. But when we look at what the facts actually say, we can see that they line up. So the question one would ask is, if it's so cut and dry, plain and clear, why isn't this taught? 
if it is so easily deciphered and understood, well, how come it doesn't just get changed? Well, if you remember what I said just a few moments ago, Egypt was the very first place archaeology was done. And after Egypt, their timeline is what every other timeline is based off of. And so if we were to go and if we were to change the Egyptian timeline, we would have to not only get rid of every single history book on Egypt, do a reprint on everyone, um, we would have to go and change all of our history books on Sumeria, all of our history books on Acadia, Babylonia, uh, Assyria. You go through it, we'd have to change everything. And because there would be such a swing in the pendulum, it's easier not to change it. And one of the reasons why it's easier not to change it is because most people don't ask these questions. Most people in the church and outside the church. And the reality is the theological importance of Exodus and the theological importance of God's word, it remains true. It remains true. But some things come into question if the Bible is not historically accurate. You might ask yourself or you might ask me, well, why does it actually matter that the Bible be historically accurate? If God gave us this plan of salvation, if, if Jesus really came, that should be enough. And it is. I'm not going to try and say you have to believe the Bible is 100% historically accurate to be saved. Because Jesus doesn't say that. But Jesus says some things that would make me lean and believe that the Bible has to be historically accurate for me to believe what Jesus said. And why is that? Jesus quotes Genesis as history. Jesus quotes Exodus as history. Jesus quotes Exodus as being written by Moses. Do you know if you were to go Wikipedia, Exodus right now, you would see that most modern scholarship believes that the Exodus was written after the exilic period, which is after Israel left captivity in Babylon. The Exodus was written by Jewish scholars and Jewish scribes maybe 200 years before Christ. It's not an ancient document. It wasn't written by Moses. It was written closer to Jesus than it was the events it purports. But Jesus said Moses wrote it. So if we believe mainstream academia, if we believe what is being talked about in the cultural setting then we have to, whether we want to or not, we have to say Jesus was wrong. And that's hard to do for someone who believes Jesus is God and that God can't lie. Why would God lie if he could lie? Why would he lie to us about the book of Exodus? Why would he lie to us about Moses? You see, Jesus is not lying when he says Moses wrote Exodus. So that means Moses wrote Exodus. When Jesus quotes events that took place in Exodus, that means those events took place. And if we can't find them archaeologically, then we're just not looking hard enough. And what we begin to do when we begin to dig out in the sand, the reason this message is called something's burning out in the desert, remember Moses, he killed an Egyptian, he runs off into the desert, he meets who becomes his father-in-law, Jethro, in Midian, uh, uh, the Midianite, and he becomes the shepherd, and he's taking the flock, and he goes out. The Bible in the King James says, to the back of the desert. 
I didn't know a geographical region could have a back. But he goes to the back of the desert, and while he's in the back of the desert, he sees something off in the distance. And it is a bush that appears to be burning. And as he begins to approach, he hears God. And God tells him to take off his shoes for the ground on which he walks is holy ground. And then God calls Moses to one of the greatest rescue missions of all time to lead his people out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery. And the theological importance there of someone who is trapped, someone who is a slave, and then being led into freedom. We sang that song today. I'm no longer a slave. And the story is true from a theological standpoint, but it's true from a historical standpoint as well. And out in the desert, out in the sands of Egypt, the sands of the Middle East, there's something burning out there. And it's still burning today, and it's the truth. And if we look hard enough, we will find that God's word is true forever. What does Peter say about the word of God? He says, the grass, the flowers of the field, they may wither away, but the word of God endures forever. Forever. Not just when it was written, not just for the people of antiquity or those ancient people, because we don't need it anymore. Religion's just a crutch. No, God's word endures forever. And so when it says something, it means something. When it said something took place, that thing took place. And for me, and hopefully for you too, when God's word says God will do something for us, that means God will do something for us. When God's word says he will never leave us nor forsake us, it means he will never leave us nor forsake us. But if Jesus was lying about history, could Jesus be lying about that? You see the, the heaviness of the, the question, does history actually matter? Because if history doesn't matter, then whatever Jesus said, we, we don't have to take it as 100% truth. But when Jesus said something historically happened, and we believe it historically happened, and we can find the evidence that it historically happened, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when Jesus says one of these theological promises, we can know that they're true. And so I want to encourage you guys this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I really pared this down. Um, I, I, I wanted to bring a whiteboard on this side and a whiteboard on this side. And I wanted to draw pictures for you guys and write a whole bunch. Uh, Sophia says I should have. She's in the youth group. She's seen the whiteboards before. Um, but there isn't enough time on a Sunday morning to go through all this. So we pared this down. But what I want us to leave with today is that as we embark into this new series through the book of Genesis, we're going to be presented with theological ideas. We're going to be pre presented with all of these amazing stories. And I want us to know that all of these stories are true from a historical standpoint. And then the types and the symbols that we can see and the things that we can extract from it that are applicable for us today, they can be applicable for us today because these are real things that took place back in the day. God's word is true. And as believers, we can have assurance that God's word is true. And God will never fail us. God will never fail. And if, so if we leave with anything, there's lots of information but know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. When God's word says something, it means it. 
And we can find out the truth the more we dig for it. And I want to encourage us to dig God's word. Find the truth. Find the truth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you, uh, God, that your word is true. God, we thank you that your word uh, is full of so much for us. It is the bread of life. God, it is rivers of living water. God, that when we come to your word, when we are hungry, when we are thirsty for your word, God, you supply, and you tell us that we will never thirst or hunger again. God, we thank you that your word will endure forever. And God, the things of this world, they'll come and go. The ideas in academia, the ideas in culture, they come and go. They fade like the grass. But your word remains true. Your word is always culturally relevant. Your word is for now, just as it was for then, and for it will be in the future. And so God, we thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that we can rely on you. God, that you will never let us down. So God, as, as, as we close in this worship song, God, we acknowledge that we need you. Above all else, knowledge is great. And your word tells us that it's the beginning of the fear of the Lord. But God, your word also tells us that knowledge puffs up. And if we're only in it for the knowledge, we're gonna fall short. God, at the end of the day, we need you. We need you. And so God, we just submit ourselves to you and we humbly come before you and we declare that you are true and that you love us and that we love you. So God, as we go from this place this morning, God, I pray that we would go knowing that your word is true, knowing that we can put our faith and our trust in you and you will never leave us nor forsake us. So God, we thank you, we praise you. In your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen.